This is the Pullmaps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. This week on our book segment, we're joined by Paolo Rovetti, author of the book Political Participation in Iran, From Khatami to the Green Movement. We'll also hear from Alexandra Siegel, who is the author, along with Jonathan Nagler, Richard Bonneau, and Joshua Tucker, of the new article in World Politics, Tweeting Beyond Tahrir, Ideological Diversity and Political Intolerance in Egyptian Twitter Networks. Finally, we'll hear from Constantine Ash, author of the new article, How Did Tunisians React to Anefta's 2016 Reforms? Evidence from a Survey Experiment. Thanks for listening. This is the Pullmaps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Alexandra Siegel at the University of Colorado at Boulder, the author of the new article, Tweeting Beyond Tahrir, Ideological Diversity and Political Intolerance in Egyptian Twitter Networks, just published in World Politics. She wrote this along with a team from the, from the New York University's Center for Social Media and Politics uh, with Joshua Tucker, Jonathan Nagler, and Richard Bonneau. Alexa, thanks for joining us. Great, Mark. Thank you so much for having me today. So tell us about the article. Sure. So I'll start out by giving kind of the broad motivation for this project. I was living in Cairo in 2011, 2012, during a much more optimistic time in Egyptian politics. And I think as a lot of us who follow a lot of Egyptians on social media noticed in the aftermath of the coup, we saw things, first of all, like calls by CC supporters to unfriend Islamists, and also a lot more kind of general intolerance being expressed in discussions of Egyptian politics. And so when I started grad school at NYU and joined the Center for Social Media and Politics, which then was called the SMAP Lab, and had the opportunity to actually collect Twitter data and examine it systematically, I wanted to understand what were the consequences of this increasing polarization in the Egyptian Twitter sphere and online sphere more broadly for political behavior. And so in order to answer this question, the first stage was just to establish, okay, do we see different behavior online for people who are in really homogenous networks, who follow only Islamists or non-Islamists, for example, relative to people who are more connected across the ideological spectrum in Egypt who see content from kind of all sides of the political debate. And so the first stage of this project was just assessing that correlation between network diversity and tolerance. And what we found is sort of as expected, people who are in these more homogenous networks express much more political intolerance than those in more diverse networks. But of course, a lot of things could be driving this relationship. It might just be that more intolerant people self-select into really homogenous networks, whereas people who are more tolerant at baseline cultivate these networks that have more ideological diversity. And so to try to understand the direction of this relationship better, we collected an additional year and a half of data so that we, we could see both how people's networks change over time and how their behavior changes over time. And what we find is that people who spend more time, in this case, an additional year in ideologically diverse networks 
networks express less political intolerance over time, whereas people who spend more time in homogenous networks express more intolerance over time. And what's interesting about this, right, people are still choosing to stay in this network, so this doesn't overcome the selection problem in and of itself, but we see that people don't tend to change their networks across this time period. And depending on the assumptions we make, we can begin to kind of tease out the causal arrow and interpret the direction of this relationship more effectively. So we see that spending time in more diverse networks increases tolerance. And this is especially the case for people who follow more moderates. And by moderates, we mean people who are kind of not clearly in the Islamist or non-Islamist camp in this case. And we think this provides suggestive evidence of the social norms at play in these online spaces. When people have more interactions with uh, people who have different beliefs or might not be so politically engaged at all, they may sort of temper their language a bit as opposed to people who wind up in networks where they're regularly exposed to intolerant language and then feel more comfortable using it themselves. Now, one of the things which is really interesting and innovative about uh, about this article and about the, the broader study is the way you're able to harness uh, Twitter and big data in a way to kind of really dig into this at the individual level uh, over time. So tell us a little bit about how you went about collecting this data and why you think this gives you insights into things like tolerance and, uh, and, and, and that sort of thing. Sure, so thank you for this question. So. First of all, no social media platform is going to be representative of the population as a whole, right? So we want to be clear from the beginning that we're just talking about Egyptians who are on Twitter in this time period. And to kind of narrow this even further, we have to look at Egyptians who are politically engaged in the sense that they're regularly tweeting about political topics. Because if we try to measure tolerance through individuals' tweets and they never tweet about political content, we're not going to get very much insight there. So this definitely limits the population we can examine to these kind of politically engaged Egyptians who were active on Twitter in this time period. So we begin with a collection that was um, kind of collected in real time beginning in 2014 of all tweets that contain the keyword Egypt in addition to to a number of terms related to Egyptian politics to try to capture um, any discourse that might be relevant to Egyptian politics in this time period. And then the first stage is to find content that is relevant to civil liberties, because when we think about tolerance or intolerance, this needs to be content that's either about extending or restricting civil liberties to an outgroup. So in order to do this, we um, take a random sample of this Egyptian Twitter data do a bunch of human coding of the Arabic language content, and then use this to train a classifier, which allows us to determine which tweets in this really large collection are relevant to civil liberties or not. And by large, what do you mean by large? So by large, I mean 148 million tweets in this case. I think that's, that's worth noting that this is a, this is a really big data set. Yeah, so it was something that you couldn't code by hand, exactly. even with a really large team of RAs. 
So now we have this set of data where we know what tweets are relevant to civil liberties or not. So we can find individuals that regularly tweet about this content. So we chose a cutoff, which was a bit of an arbitrary threshold where we said, okay, we're gonna look at anyone who has at least four tweets relevant to civil liberties in Egypt during this time period. And then for those individuals, we, we again use this kind of iterative process of starting with human coded data to train a classifier and we say okay among tweets relevant to civil liberties in Egypt, which are tolerant and which are intolerant. And um, so this allows us to have this data set where we have all of the tweets from a set of users who regularly talk about civil liberties and, and politics in Egypt and we can say okay which of their tweets express tolerance and which express intolerance. And by continuing to collect data for these same users for an additional year and a half, we can see how the contents of their tweets change over time. And, and at the same time, we collect data on the structure of their networks. So how many Islamists do they follow? How many non-Islamists do they follow? Looking both at the elites, like political elites and religious leaders, as well as the kind of everyday Twitter users that they follow. And so this construction of the network, let's talk a little bit about that, because it's kind of interesting, especially in the context of what's happening in Egypt um, over this time period. So how did you go about uh, placing all these individuals? Sure. So there are kind of several ways to think about the diversity of people's networks. And the approach that we went with is somewhat similar to an approach that's increasingly common in kind of studying Twitter networks more generally, which was developed by Pablo Barbera. And the idea basically is that the people that individuals choose to follow can tell us something about their ideology. And these types of methods have been validated in a lot of different contexts because it's sort of a conscious choice in a sense to follow political elites for example with a, with a specific ideological orientation and so by examining the kind of distribution of elites that individuals follow we can start to classify their ideology. So what do you mean and, by elites in this context? Yeah so elites in this context um, I, I mean sort of Egyptian political elites, people who either have run for office or engaged in politics. The kind of starting point for this was to get a list of the most followed people in the Egyptian Twitter sphere and select any that had any kind of political orientation at all to put into our elite category. So this is mostly political elites, but also include some religious figures. Um, as well. And their orientation is well known. So you, you don't have to guess if they're an Islamist or, or not. Right. They have, and right. So these need to be people with a clear political orientation. And so we can look at both in terms of an elite network. This is a pretty straightforward task. We just count basically how many Islamists do you follow and how many non-Islamists do you follow among these most followed Twitter users in Egypt. But we can also say something about the everyday Twitter users that these people follow by similarly classifying their ideologies according to the Islamists and non-Islamists that they follow. And, and looking at all those people, it adds up. Right. So you're able to then 
classify all of the people in any of these politically engaged Twitter users' networks according to their ideological orientation, including people that may follow no elites at all. So let, let's then talk about some of the results then. So uh, you're, you're tracking these people within their networks and you're looking at these, uh, these expressions or these tweets basically that are either saying, kill all the brutes or we should listen to what they have to say, like, you know, very crudely. Um, so then what do you see and what does it tell you about Egyptian politics? Sure. So first, just to highlight in a little more detail what we mean by tolerant or intolerant tweets. So these could express a range of positions from things like these people should be included in the political process all the way to the end of, you know, kill all members of this political party. So there's a really wide range, range of rhetoric that could get classified in either direction. And so taken together, what we find is first that in aggregate, Egyptian Twitter users who are in these more homogenous networks, who are exposed to more ideological diversity, express higher levels of political tolerance. And this is true for both CZ supporters and Islamists. It's true on both sides. And then when we look at how this changes over time, this is where I think some of the more interesting findings come into play. So people typically do not change their networks, the composition of their networks in this time period. So if you were following all Islamists in late 2014, you're still following all Islamists in October 2016. And right. I think- The great unfriending and great unfollowing, that happened back in 2013. Right. I think that's exactly right. So I'm not sure that this would be the case in other environments, but here, because there was this great unfollowing on, on Twitter in the period before this study, the composition of people's networks, at least ideologically speaking, stayed relatively stable in this time period. So people are spending time in the same networks and their behavior is changing and it's changing in two different directions. So people who are in more diverse networks are becoming more tolerant and people in more homogenous networks are becoming more intolerant. And I mean this not in terms of their attitudes, right? But just in terms of the content that they publicly express about politics. So why don't we broaden this out a little bit then say, what, what is your ability uh, to use this Twitter data uh, to get at these kinds of individual level changes and characteristics? What does this do, do you think, for kind of studying politics uh, more broadly in a comparative sense? You know, where, where do you hope that this kind of takes uh, uh, comparative politics? Sure. So one huge advantage, I think, to this kind of data is there's been decades of research, for example, examining the relationship between network diversity and tolerance before the advent of social media, where typically people ask survey questions about how many people do you know who have these views or how many people do you know from this ethnic group at one moment in time. And then they also ask people questions designed to get at their level of tolerance. So you just have these measures which are self-reported at one moment in time. But with the Twitter data, we have these behavioral measures, both of the networks that people cultivate and immerse themselves in and in their behavior. What do they say about politics? What do they say about the outgroup? So I think 
this gives us this really nice kind of organic measure of this behavior that we have longitudinally so we can see how it evolves over as long of a time horizon as we want as researchers. I will say there are limitations that come with this too, right? We can't get a nationally representative sample. We can only say something about people who talk about politics because we wouldn't be able to have these measures without this. But I think we're seeing a lot of innovations, mostly in the American politics subfield, where people are trying to combine this digital trace data with survey data so that they have you know, the Twitter handles or Facebook activity of people that they've also been able to survey at different points in time. And so I think that's kind of the direction that this is going. And I think it's not that one method is better than the other, but when we can combine the two, we can get a much clearer picture of that, what, what's happening and the relationships between attitudes and behaviors. Almost like a super big, super long-term panel. Yeah. And then you could also then presumably then expand this beyond just the tolerance question, right? I mean, this becomes a way of getting at individual attitudes in ways that we've never really been able to do before. Exactly. And I'll say also the kind of gold standard research for this, right, would be if you could randomly assign people to spend time in different networks or to receive different kinds of content. And this is really hard to do in a naturalistic way, but actually coming work, not from the Egyptian context, but from the Israeli-Palestinian context. Um, Haggai Weiss, Alex Stocko, and I are working with a Jerusalem-based NGO, which translates um, content between Arabic and Hebrew to expose residents of West and East Jerusalem to each other's perspectives. And so we've been able to randomly assign Jews in West Jerusalem to receive content from the perspective of Arabs in East Jerusalem for a couple weeks and then measure their behavior and attitudes afterwards. So I think increasingly we're seeing work that is kind of going in both directions where we have the digital trace data, but we're also able to kind of manipulate some aspects of this experimentally to get more causal purchase. That sounds really interesting. Can't wait to see that one published. Um, we've been speaking with Alexandra Siegel at the University of Colorado Boulder. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. This is the Polmaps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Constantine Ash of the University of Central Florida, uh, author of the new article, How Did Tunisians React to Anehta's 2016 Reforms? Evidence from a Survey Experiment, which just came out of Mediterranean politics. Uh, Constantine, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. So tell us about the article. So uh, the article is uh, motivated by these reforms that uh, a Tunisian political party, an Islamist political party, uh, implemented in 2016. Um, and the party is uh, enough that it's, uh, it's uh, Tunisia's sort of moderate uh, and largest and actually most durable political party. Uh, it uh, Following the revolution uh, in Tunisia in 2011, it uh, won the elections, it won a plurality of the seats. Uh, and then in 2014, after kind of a tumultuous time in government where there were a lot of sort of standoffs and terrorist attacks, uh, it ended up uh, losing the election to some extent, although it ended up still in the governing coalition. Uh, and in 2016, they implemented these reforms, uh, which uh, were a bit unprecedented just because there aren't a lot of Islamist parties who uh, are operating in democracies. Uh, but the reforms primarily uh, try to separate the party from its religious wing as much as possible. Uh, the leaders weren't allowed to preach at mosques anymore. There was less of a requirement to lead a conservative lifestyle. 
And there was sort of a formal uh, decoupling from the religious wing. Uh, and so the motivation was to try to see if that had an, an effect on the public opinion uh, of uh, Tunisian voters. Uh, and the survey took place in 2017 and it's particularly sort of uh, interesting because after the survey took place enough that lost even more uh, seats in the 2019 election uh, and there was actually some other Islamist parties that popped up. So uh, the, the results kind of support that. They, they ultimately show that there's no aggregate change and some key groups that uh, previously supported Nafta for various reasons uh, seemed less likely to support them. So they lost some of their base, but they didn't pick up any new voters. Yeah, effectively, um, the, the, the two key findings are that secular voters uh, and educated voters viewed the actual reforms more positively, but they didn't actually view Nakhda more positive, more favorably. It seemed like uh, they thought, oh, it was a good thing that you guys did your reforms, but uh, we're not actually necessarily still more amenable. So the, the appeal that Nakhda tried to do, and this is why I, I talked to some of their strategists, it, it, some of the appeals uh, were the very deliberate. They were trying to get more secular voters. They were trying to get more sort of these educated voters that voted for other parties. Uh, what ended up happening is that those people seemed to like that they did the reforms, but they didn't necessarily like enough on the other side. Uh, sort of less secular voters, uh, kind of in the middle of uh, not quite super religious, uh, thinking that religion should be uh, intertwined with government, but not quite decided that it shouldn't be. Uh, those people, uh, kind of the moderates, ended up being less likely to have a favorable opinion of nothing, and also less educated voters. And I think that sort of spoke to a anti-system effect uh, that Nakhda wasn't just a religious party. It was also uh, a sort of new party. It was, it was a new party in government that wasn't Ben Ali. It wasn't uh, the sort of uh, existing uh, political cadre that was in charge of Tunisia for pretty much all the time since independence uh, and that appeal to people to some extent. So when a party becomes, looks more like a conventional political party, uh, it, it kind of disenchants those people, that those people who are very more anti-system than anything. And I think that's, that's what that finding spoke to. Interesting. So in order to test this, you designed a survey experiment. So tell us what you did and, um, and how it was designed and kind of, you know, what, what you learned from it. So uh, the survey experiment, uh, the primary sort of idea was that it's, it's 2016 that the reforms are implemented. Maybe people have heard of them, maybe they haven't. Uh, so in 2017, uh, I heard sort of one-to-one -one, uh, research and polling, which is, uh, I think, one of the, the better survey firms, if not the best survey firm uh, in, in Tunisia. They also do uh, Afrobarometer uh, and a bunch of other people have used them. Uh, and so th they, uh, we work kind of together. Uh, and so... The main prime was just to remind people about the reforms and ask people whether they agreed or disagreed randomly. It was half the sample got that and half the sample got nothing. There was another prime just kind of uh, to see if it was just that effect on Nita Tunis, have the sort of other major party in 2014 to 17. It has since fallen apart, but uh, it is it was around at the time that, that see, like a lot of high ranking officials from Ben Ali regime were in that party. So. We had that prime as, uh, or I had that prime as sort of a cross prime, but the, the idea was to, to give half the people in the sample uh, this, this prime, the leadership of Nafta can no longer appreciate mosques, is no longer required to live a conservative lifestyle. What do you think? Do you have a favorable, unfavorable opinion of that? Um, and so the good part is that 
for half the sample, you also have a direct sort of response to those reforms, but you also prime them on those reforms and then ask how favorably do you view Anakha and see the difference. And the key takeaway is that the difference wasn't significantly, there was on the whole, no difference in Anakha's favorability, which is not what the strategists would have liked or would have expected. But in particular, they actually lost support among uh, those moderate sort of secular, uh, those people moderately on the secular scale. And they lost some support uh, from people who were uh, less educated uh, from what I think was an anti-system party effect. And so, so how do you interpret this then in terms of what it means for kind of the party and uh, public opinion? So I think for the party is the parties, uh, I spoke to the strategists and what they wanted. And I think it, it was a kind of a miscalculation of uh, maybe their misunderstanding of what politics uh, in Tunisia were lining up to be in the future, because they, they didn't, so sort of the, the literature on moderation and institutionalization of Islamist parties tends to think of them as, well, eventually they'll turn to like the Christian democratic parties in Europe. And that's not what they aspired to be. They did talk about Europe, but they aspired to be more like the AKP in Turkey. Note, these are 2016 interviews. So the AKP in, in 2016 was maybe not the AKP of right now, but the AKP of 2016 is what they kind of aspire to be this like very powerful all-encompassing kind of umbrella party that spoke to lots of different constituencies but also had this Islamist bent. Um, what ended up happening is that it seems like they, they may have overestimated how durable their support was and how you know committed people were to the system because Turkey and Tunisia are two different places. Uh, they don't have that reliability on economic success uh, and ultimately the fact that they were intent on being in the governing coalition in every single uh, Tunisian government, they're still in the governing coalition right now, uh, may play against them because a lot of people are very disappointed with uh, democracy in Tunisia and they don't support particularly any major party and mm -hmm. moving yourself closer to those major parties uh, speaks uh, to a lot of people's disenchantment and that doesn't give them a reason to vote. Uh, for your candidates, either in the parliamentary elections or in the presidential elections, they feel that a presidential candidate also in 2019, I should mention. And uh, he got Abdel Fattah Muru, he got about 13% of the vote he didn't get out of the first round. Whereas uh, K. Saeed, the current president of Tunisia, is sort of this um, anti system, but still kind of moderate Islamist candidate. Uh, and, and you see a lot of these sorts of defections away from the establishment and the establishment by becoming more like the establishment, they seem to have lost or at least not gained support. And so when uh, Anahta did this, uh, they might have had global or reputational aspirations. Remember uh, Rashid Anushi with his whole, we are now Muslim Democrats, not Islamists, but it just didn't play out that way with Tunisians. Yeah, definitely. It, it doesn't, it, it, it was definitely a move. I mean, Hanushi, during the meeting where they announced the reforms, uh, was hugging with Beji Kaida Sebsi, who was the president, at the late Beji Kaida Sebsi, the president at the time, uh, Sebsi's former regime official under Ben Ali. Uh, so it's kind of showing this embrace and this kind of unity uh, with uh, very much the political establishment and a lot of the people who served under Ben Ali was probably not the best idea in, in, a, in a system which has such turnover 
uh, and such disappointment. I think enough that is notable for its durability. I'm, I'm kind of looking at the one of the appendix tables right now that I have in the paper of election results. And it's the only party that's really consistently actually gotten seats. Um, even Nita Tunis went from having 86 seats to completely falling apart into three different parties uh, and getting almost nothing. Uh, and you just see a lot of turnover and a lot of disappointment. And enough that has this durable base and they, they have something to build on, but it, it's still not something that uh, you know, it is necessarily a model for Islamist movements as, as they operate in more democratic spheres. Right. Now, going back to the, your, uh, your survey uh, experiment, did you see any notable uh, demographic uh, differences or anything jump out at you in terms of different types of responses? Um, apart from the like education um, and uh, sort of uh, secularism effects, there was something that didn't really also make too much of a difference, uh, which was interesting that the sort of public service provision, which is something that, you know, uh, whether Nachta is uh, known for public service, prov providing these alternate pathways of public service or not, that didn't like seem to even help them either. You mean like social uh, and it is some sort of thing? Yeah, so sort of providing those sorts of services um, either through alternative pathways or in government, they were in government from 11 to 14, uh, didn't seem to help them. The, the idea was a lot of the strategists said that, well, we do all this stuff for people, but maybe they're kind of turned off by the fact that, you know, that they think we're associated with these more hardcore Islamist movements like Hezbollah Tahrir or something like that. And we want to, we want to signal to them, we, we don't, we're not, uh, that we're really, uh, we're really sort of, uh, a different, more sa safe kind of alternative. And we'll, we'll try to provide you with public services and things like that, but it, it didn't seem to really have much of a consistent effect. And that, uh, that, that is also kind of surprising to them at least um, because uh, they had those sort of expectations uh, and they really didn't pan out. But it didn't, um, it didn't go in either direction though, really, it, it, right? It was just kind of no, no significant impact at all. Yeah, it was just, it, it, did, it didn't work as in it was not significant. It, they didn't lose support necessarily because uh, from, from that constituency of people. Now that's interesting. And so in terms of this, then, you know, where do you think you go from, from here then? What you're describing is a system where kind of all the, made, all the established parties are losing, uh, kind of losing appeal and Aneta is struggling, it sounds like, uh, from your results to, uh, to navigate that or adapt to it. Well, it, it, I think it's tricky for a lot of Islamist parties. As you mentioned, there's a lot of international pressure that you can't uh, be necessarily as responsive to your constituents because you lose that support. Aneta is unique, I think, in, in that sense, because uh, in their exile, a lot of them went to Europe, a lot of them established connections, uh, and they don't want to lose those connections. Uh, and so they, they have this alternative kind of pole that they also need to appeal to. And that, that might be something that we see in other uh, Islamist uh, movements uh, as they operate in increasingly democratic spaces. Uh, they navigate between like, well, how populist should we get and how, how much of a conventional establishment party should we be? And ultimately, I think as of right now, Nafta isn't necessarily doing a good job. And there's a lot of pushback against Anushi's leadership. There's a lot of internal turmoil in the party, which is not something that was 
evident when I talked to them in 2017, but I think the election results uh, are really what initiated that turmoil. The fact that they lost seats, the fact that they tried reforming. Um, a lot of people that I did, some of the strategists I talked to were upset that they were they kept like allying with Nita Tunis. Uh, they didn't think they should have been in that coalition. Uh, so th there might be more pushback and there might be, you know, just a breakdown of the party as a whole, because he, with these very undurable parties in Tunisia, Anakta so far has been an outlier. But uh, it's it's it, it, it's not something that's predictably going to be durable uh, into 2024 or earlier if there are earlier elections uh, as we move forward. Well, great. We've been speaking with Konstantin Ash about his new article about uh, Tunisia's ref uh, uh, Aneta's reforms in Tunisia, just published in Mediterranean Politics. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now on the book segment by Paolo Rovetti of Dublin City University, the author of the recent book, Political Participation in Iran, From Khatami to the Green Movement, published by Paul Grave Macmillan. Uh, Paola, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us about this book uh, and where it came from. So it actually comes from a um, very long trajectory because I've started researching for this book or I started to be interested in Iran and then traveling to Iran and then eventually ending up um, researching for this book in 2005. So it's, it's a very long time ago. And in 2005, 2005 is actually the first time I traveled to Iran for my MA thesis. I studied in, in Italy. I did my MA and PhD in Italy. And MA thesis in Italy are a serious, uh, you know, mm -hmm. a serious affair. So I had to, I actually wanted to go to Iran for some uh, field work and some field research. And, um, and so that all started. Um, I graduated in 2006, then I entered a PhD program um, uh, one year after that. And uh, my PhD thesis was already about uh, Iranian reformism. But of course, this book is also the result of a, um, you know, reflections and the long process of rethinking everything I had so far, uh, all the data that I had so far collected, I had so far analyzed. So the book is very much the result of, I would say, intersecting temporalities and also intersecting research, uh, different research interests that I have developed across the years. And so you're interviewing many of the same people over and over again, over a very long period of time. That really gives a different kind of perspective than we see in a lot of um, political science research, which is much more you know, narrowly focused. Correct. And I think that the core argument of the book is also a very good reflection of this kind of continuous engagement with, um, uh, with research participants. Um, my interest, um, my original interest was very much referenced Reformism was very much about reformism as a um, political ideology, um, as a um, person who was 
around 20 years of age um, in early 2000s, I grew up in, in, and also I politically developed my, um, you know, sensitivity and the way in which I understand the world, uh, being basically surrounded by this reformist mantra. And to me, it was really interesting uh, to see how this was reflected and the same was happening basically in, in such a different place like the Islamic Republic of Iran. So when I, when I really started, I wanted to understand, um, you know, reformism and the kind of Iranian variation uh, of, uh, of reformism, how, what reformism meant in such a different political system, in such a different cultural, um, cultural, cultural context. But then I got, as I, you know, as I continued uh, engaging with the field and research participants, I got really much, very much interested in political participation because political participation and actually political activism was the only or one of the very few um, sites of um, uh, contentious politics, uh, one of the very few um, spaces, political spaces where discontent and a different narrative about reformism was brought to the, to the, to, to the fore. So we know that reformism, um, at least in its, you know, mainstream kind of mainstream definition in this is this, uh, you know, moderate, uh, long-term, but also uh, um, always presented as a with a very positive, in a very positive light, um, engagement with political change. Um, this was the case for, um, you know, the reformism I grew up with in, in, in Italy, but also this was the self-narrative and the narration of reformism that we, we could I could find in the scholarship about Iran and about Iranian reformism, and also the kind of narrative that the um, Iranian state authorities were also, uh, you know, offering of, uh, of, of reformism. So talking to um, um, activists across all these years, really gave me a good measure of how in reality this narration and this narrative was contested and also why. So I could develop a, um, a complex argument. I could develop a complex um, analysis of reformism, which actually allowed me to go beyond this positive and uh, very uh, very flat, very consistent and beautiful uh, narration of reformism. Um, so I ended up seeing reformism as a project of political and social engineering. Um, and political participation was, is, was, and but still is um, actually central to, to this um, political engineering, to this project of political engineering, because that's the space where the uh, reformist government in Iran uh, tried to build a base, a basis of consensus and a very a solid basis for for consensus. Uh, however, this almost as a, as a state-led, top-down process uh, in exactly. terms of this particular ideological political project. Exactly, but. Here, I think, is the interesting bit because when you when you talk when I talked to um, to research participants, most of them, many of them were were activists or even you know journalists, but they would self-define as reformist, um, more or less in an activist way. Uh, they would actually also offer a narrative of reformism, which clearly 
highlighted a process of reappropriation of reformism. Right. So you definitely have these elements of top-down reform of political engineering, which I, you know, which I, um, um, I highlight <clears throat> in my book. But on the other side, you also have um, this kind of unintended consequences of reformism, this kind of boost for political agency that was not in the, in the plans, in the governmental plans, but actually took place precisely because the government opened up political participation. It opened up spaces for civil society to become activists. And although the government wanted civil society to become uh, active in, in a specific way, of course, this was not, um, you know, the government couldn't really control how civil society and activists um, really occupied those spaces for political participation. And this is why in my book, I talk about unintended consequences of, uh, of reformism, which of course is not, um, you know, is an expression that I, I didn't come up with. It's a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's an expression that has been used by many different scholars to describe many different uh, political dynamics. Uh, and this is also why I talk about surplus, a surplus of activism, which was created precisely by this sort of short circuit that we had between this political, this project of political engineering, top-down project on the one side, but on the other side, this political agency, independent and autonomous political agency that was um, created um, with, without really the willingness to create it by the, uh, paradoxically by the government. There's so many interesting dimensions of this, but before we get to the, um, the emergence and evolution of civil society and reformism, maybe you could say just a little bit more about why is political participation so important to the Islamic Republic? Why is this such a key thing in a system where outsiders might not see this as being so central? So there are basically two reasons. One reason is a more historical reason. The Islamic Republic is still a revolutionary system, you know, by name. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the truth, the historical truth is that it is born out of a revolution. So there's, there's a, at least rhetorically speaking, uh, there is a, a celebration of political participation. There is a celebration of the people as this very active, um, um, agent, historical agent, um, uh, you know, agent of change. And so th there is something about that that actually makes um, Iranian civil society uh, legitimate right. uh, to be politically active. They want uh, the legitimation from below. Exactly. And there's also something about, um, and actually Shervin Malekzadeh wrote about this, um, and I think he's very, I, I encountered this kind of paradox in, in uh, you know, during my fieldwork a lot of times. And that's when, how would you expect um, um, young citizens that the, uh, the, the, the school system, the education system trains um, on the basis of concepts such as resistance to our arrogance, on the basis of concepts such as um, you know, anti-imperialism, on the basis of all these concepts that um, you know, talk about political emancipation and talk about political uh, rebellion, basically. How would you expect them to become quiet and docile citizens? Um, of course, you know, the state paradoxically is providing um, the instruments to 
its young citizens for actually seeing where arrogance is, for actually calling out that arrogance and perhaps also acting upon, uh, you know, what the, the, the awareness that the state is in fact being arrogant, is in fact being authoritarian and so forth and so on. So political participation is important for this kind of longer historical trajectory, which is very much part of, um, you know, of the regime, of the history of the post-revolutionary regime itself. Uh, post-revolutionary system, I should say, uh, itself, and which has unintended implication and unintended consequences. Uh, there's also a, another reason, however, which is much more contextual. Uh, the uh, Khatami's governments, uh, which are the, the Iranian reformist governments uh, that ruled Iran between uh, late 90s and mid 2000s, just before uh, Ahmadinejad was elected for the first time, uh, faced significant opposition by the conservative forces because actually they were bringing, they, they were offering a very different political discourse, a political discourse, um, and which was of course very, very much, uh, for, was very rhetorical and, you know, in a, in a certain way, even, um, you know, a facade, uh, uh, you know, political rhetoric, but at the same time, they, the concept and the notions they were mobilizing uh, were very liberal. So you had concepts such as, uh, you know, civil society recalled a being a recurrent theme in, uh, you know, in, in reformist political language. Uh, democracy, religious democracy was another concept that was constantly mobilized. Um, human rights were also, uh, you know, constantly mobilized, mobilized. So the conservative forces were actually quite scared of, um, you know, of, of these new, I mean, they were not new, but this liberal oriented and, and reformist forces that were getting into power. And also were scared because they were harvesting um, a lot of popular consent and a lot of popular support. Khatami was elected by a landslide majority, um, uh, su subsequent elections for the parliament, uh, you know, were won by reformists, by again, by a wide majority. So the conservatives were really scared of uh, losing grip on, um, you know, state ideology and, and, and all of that and culture and all of that. So uh, engineering political participation, meaning engineering political support was also very important to the, the Khatamist government because, of, because it was a way to kind of contrast and to kind of counter the threat coming from, uh, from uh, conservative forces. And it, it's important to remember that when, you know, the threats coming from conservative forces were not exclusively <clears throat> of a rhetorical nature. Uh, we had killings, we had attempts um, at assassination. So it, the, that kind of threat, the threats were very, very real. Um, so um, the, all the Iranian uh, reformists and the, the political class and, and the political elite of Iranian reformism was, uh, they, they all were very, very scared. Why don't we go back a little bit uh, to maybe even before Khatami's government and kind of the, the, the rise of Iranian civil society and how, how it got to the state that it was in. So it was in a position to play that role when uh, Khatami takes office. So let's talk about the early, early 90s and where this reformist discourse and the kind of institutions of Iranian civil society kind of build and take hold. 
Yes, correct. That's the, the, the 90s were the crucial decade for, uh, for, the, um, for, the, for the development of civil society. And again, uh, you know, there's, a, there's something to, that we need to say about political engineering once again, um, because the, uh, although of course we had a, we had a, um, we, had a, uh, we, had a we, we have a very politically aware uh, population, uh, as I said before, uh, the very the, the history of the Islamic Republic itself is a history of you know of of, of a population which is quite aware and quite politically lively. Um, the nineties, um, the the that decade came after another crucial decade, uh, which was a decade of mobilization because it, we had the war uh, between Iraq and Iran. Uh, so the population was mobilized. Um, and what happened in the early 90s was that um, um, the civil society discourse really became internationally speaking uh, a reality. And therefore there were opportunities for um, the government uh, to, um, again, to engineer, to kind of structure this population that was mobilized, to kind of structure and give a shape and give a form. And um, therefore making these mobilized populations slightly more controllable uh, by the means of establishing NGOs which according to the um, you know, definition of, of uh, civil society are you know, the, the, the unit of, of civil society. And we have um, actually in the book, I, I do talk about direct testimonies about this. Um, I had the chance to talk, to, to talk with um, you know, uh, people who were part of this story, this very early story of civil society and who were sharing memories about uh, being part of um, institutional uh, initiatives, for instance, for women's rights or for um, um, development, economic and political development of um, uh, and modernization actually as well was another word that was used even in the 90s uh, of the time who, do, who, who remember um, how um, political authorities and um, um, governance um, actors, such as, for instance, the president's office or even local, uh, local authorities did push and did promote and were offering resources uh, for uh, the establishment of civil society. So there was a very cautious and very, uh, very intentional effort by the political authorities to actually uh, making civil society a reality and making so a great it anecdote in there about uh, how they needed to send some women's NGOs to uh, to Beijing to the International Beijing, exactly. Women's Conference, so they created them. Exactly, um, and there's also in the book I report another beautiful memory by a research participant who uh, was um, 18 years old uh, when in, in when um, it was the early sorry it was the early it was 1993 so um, um, early 90s and as she graduated from uh, from high school then there was the celebration uh, organized by the local um, the local regional authority and. Um, uh, because she was uh, definitely somebody who has a, um, an extremely brilliant personality, she was immediately singled out by the regional, uh, the regional uh, president, so the, the head of this regional authority, and invited 
uh, by him, um, you know, especially to submit projects for, you know, what this man called the development of and the modernization of Iran. So there was a very intentional, and, and I mean, it also tell us a lot about the uh, kind of political uh, ability and kind of, uh, you know, political, um, uh, strategy, strategizing that uh, the political authorities of Iran were able to, uh, you know, to, to, to put in place uh, for the reconstruction that necessarily had to uh, follow the destruction of the 10 years of, of war. So a lot of the book is kind of ethnographic and kind of from the bottom up, the experience of the civil, civil, civil society activists um, and organizations. But I can't help but be struck by the figure of Mohammed Khatimi. He's always fascinated me. And um, the role that he played in first the cultivation of civil society, but then ultimately failing civil society, uh, that theme to me at least runs through at least the first part of the book before kind of before your own research in 2005 kicks in. But certainly there's that very fascinating trajectory there. Can you talk a little bit about that and the role that Khatimi plays in building civil society, but also the limitations of his own understanding of reformism. Yeah, so uh, Mohammed Khatami is really a crucial uh, personality, a crucial political personality. I would say in the consciousness of, of many, of entire generations of Iranians, definitely my generation, for instance, um, the generation that was born in the, you know, in the decade of the 60s or the 80s in, in uh, you know, Gregorian calendar. Um, and still today, if you, um, you know, I, I happen to have uh, exchanges with younger um, research participants, but also, you know, simply friends from, from Iran. And even though they didn't live through the, uh, the kind of golden era of reformism, Khatami is still somebody that they will look at mm -hmm. for, uh, as a reference, negative or positive reference. So when Khatami, uh, you know, got in power, he really was able able to, um, to um, you know, to, 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 to create this enthusiasm uh, within, within the population, partially because of his style, um, which is, you know, if the style, he's, I mean, a beautiful man, okay, but he's also very elegant, he's also very, um, you know, he has a manners as well, these very elegant manners, so definitely part of you know, the enthusiasm he was able to create is because of that, but also because he was able to, um, to create hope, I think. Uh, he created hope and uh, he um, was also, has also um, proved to be um, well-intentioned. There is a very famous video, I think it's still available on YouTube today, um, that's, um, that, that's Khatami's visit to one of the universities in Tehran and it's, uh, toward, it's during the second term, so towards the end. So a lot of people would be already very disappointed by, you know, by this change they were hoping for and waiting for and that never materialized. So the, the, the situation is the, the kind of scenario and, and what we see in the video is pretty dramatic because what we see in the video is the, the students um, not only criticizing um, Khatami quite loudly, but literally yelling at him and, uh, you know, chanting slogans against him. And 
what is very interesting of, of that video is his reaction. And his reaction is very much the reaction of a man who's very well intentioned and doesn't know what to do to, you know, to make the audience happy and to kind of explain the very complex reasons why uh, the audience is in fact, uh, you know, disappointed and angry at him. So I think he was in that sense, I think he, um, many Iranians saw in him um, a leader because he was actually um, through his manner and through his uh, disposition as well to, to, to dialogue and through, you know, his disposition to even be yelled at, um, you know, he, he was very much embodying this idea of reform, this idea of change, this idea of transformation, social transformation that was um, his campaign was offering. Um, but it, as you rightly pointed out, there are many limitations to, to his idea. Um, to his ideas and definition of, of reformism. Um, at a certain point, it became clear that he's extremely moderate, ex extremely, you know, he, the constant, um, uh, the constant search for compromise wasn't working. At, at certain point, it became clear that the uh, imbalance of power between the reformists in power who were elected and still were in the government, uh, but still were not powerful enough to push for, um, you know, for reform. So the imbalance of power you had between those paradoxically empowered reformists and the conservative forces who were not in power, were not elected, but still had so much more power was was a too wide balance imbalance to uh, you know to, to bridge with moderation and with a compromise and so forth and so on. So I think this and and I think this was you know the, the really really deep uh, limitation and was also what made people very very angry. The fact that uh, he was not willing to act. Um, you know, upon popular anger. So I guess at this point, why don't we shift over then to, you know, the field research that you began doing in 2005 and kind of the perspectives from the bottom up and what you saw in terms of how civil society kind of engaged and evolved over the Ahmadinejad years um, up through the green movement. Um, so, you know, just tell us a little bit about that and kind of what you think is really significant about uh, what you were observing yeah, so thanks for the question, because actually my book, this is something I forgot to mention, but actually my book covers <laughs> covers the period of time and looks at the dynamics of political participation up to the Green Movement. And actually, when Ahmadinejad was elected, we had a very interesting um, development of people coming and, you know, civil society, let's call them civil society activists. So. Mm -hmm you know, bringing together many different types of activists, many also with very diverse ideologies and, you know, political standings. But, um, you know, people were coming from these years where, um, you know, they, they had this um, uh, possibility and this opportunity to mobilize and to participate in uh, politically. So when Ahmadinejad got elected for the first time in 2005, and that, that coincided with me going to Iran for the mm -hmm. first time, I, I have very vivid memories of, uh, uh, you know, people being very defiant and basically describing uh, the election of Ahmadinejad as a sort of, uh, you know, minor detail that, you know, 
would not in any way change anything because civil society is too developed. Right. Um, uh, you know, he is too, um, um, I mean, they were actually saying things like his thinking is too limited. Uh, you know, it's a very polite way to say he's stupid, basically. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and we're too forward, uh, too forward, too forward thinking. So um, he's just a minor detail. So activists, activists were really brave. Uh, and I, I talk about this in my book uh, through some, um, you know, some um, research, um, uh, research participants' uh, testimonies. So, for instance, uh, a feminist uh, who uh, was uh, collecting signatures in the framework of a, of a campaign was collecting signatures for um, uh, legal change, pro-women legal change. And she was going to, um, to the barracks of Basij and Pasdaran to ask them to sign the petition mm. for, you know, for this feminist uh, legal change. So there was a braceness really, uh, you know, within, within the activist circles. And I think this really was, was a legacy in the first place of, uh, you know, of reformism, the kind of hope and enthusiasm, you know, the, the reformism created, I was talking about before. Um, so that's a legacy of reformism. And, um, uh, and that was really fundamental, that kind of uh, surplus of activism and that kind of, uh, you know, boost for political autonomous and independent political agency were really fundamental to explain why when the green movement uh, or when protests started to you know to to, to appear um, after uh, the re-election of Ahmadinejad in 2009 they quickly turned into you know a, a, such a big movement as the the, the green movement um, which definitely is a, it it's not the biggest threat to the stability of the Islamic Republic that has taken uh, taken place after the revolution because that's that would be you know the protest in 2017 but definitely is the the second biggest threat so they, they were significant well the in terms of civil society's relationship from the from with the state or with the regime, uh, you talked a lot in the Khatmi years about there being this political engineering from below. But of course, it's a very different environment that they face after two thousand five. So how do they adapt to that after this initial wave of hope and brazenness kind of gets crushed? Yeah. So um, after the green movement, in fact, uh, you know everything changed. Uh, during the first uh, mandate of uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, so 2005-2009, the um, the the NGO laws changed. So there were some uh, there were some uh, restriction, um, and and specifically, and some sites were specifically targeted. So for instance, in 2008, we have a significant. Uh, significant purges within the uh, academic staff um, in universities. So there are there are specific sites that were targeted. Um, I, in, in the book, for instance, I uh, you know I talk about the, the the student movement or one of the most the most important organization of the student movement being um, heavily targeted. Uh, with um, uh, you know local um, local branches being closed down um, and and this kind of things. Um, but the but it, it was too I mean still that enthusiasm that kind of uh, um, you know surplus of activism was still there. So the actual turning point 
was the green movement. Uh, after the green movement, you know, everything changed um, because of the, basically because of the brutal repression of the regime, uh, which was, um, was definitely unprecedented uh, until very recently again, but was unprecedented, at least for that generation that went through the, um, you know, the, 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 the so-called reformist era. Um, so um, civil society state relations dramatically changed. Um, I've been going back and forth uh, uh, with Iran until very recently. The last time I was in Iran was in 2019. So I had the chance to somewhat continue uh, monitoring, you know, the, the, you know, the developments uh, and definitely civil society today is, uh, is, is divided, I would say, between two uh, big groups. One group is um, the NGOs working in kind of safe um, sectors, such as um, child, children's rights and uh, mother, kind of mother and child, um, you know, rights and protection, so that's safe. Um, and on the other side, you have another group, which are the um, NGOs, um, you know, working in the charities, I would say, I should say, uh, working in, uh, uh, you know, very depoliticized uh, sectors uh, and being connected, so uh, dealing with development, but economic development, but also being connected to either companies, private companies, uh, or state agencies. Um, so, so it's, it has changed a lot and definitely the kind of, um, you know, enthusiasm and the kind of political awareness and the kind of political, um, uh, you know, lively atmosphere that uh, I personally could witness uh, during the 2000s before uh, the Green Movement, um, you know, is, is, is not there anymore. It doesn't mean that we have no social movements, we have no dissent in Iran, of course we do have that. Uh, but it's not as structured within something that we can call civil society or something that we could call NGOs as it used to be uh, back in the day. That's uh, really interesting and kind of depressing, but uh, I guess that's the world we live in uh, these days. Um, we've been speaking with uh, Paola Rivetti of Dublin City University. Paola, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about my book and my work. Thank you. Thank you.